Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I have a returning guest, T.R. Shaw, who's the author of the book Defy the Immediate. In my previous interview with him, we talked about the history of the funeral business in Battle Creek and some of the surrounding areas. Something that you may not know about Mr. Shaw is that he's somewhat of a Michigan wine history aficionado. And he recently gave a great presentation at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum on this topic. So I invited him to come on the show today because holidays are upon us and everybody enjoys a good glass of wine during this time of year with all your celebrations and what is better than Michigan wine. So today we're going to take a journey through the history of Michigan winemaking and the industry of Michigan wines. So welcome to the show, TR. Thank you for taking time to be on the podcast today. Hey, great to be back with you again. So TR, could you take a minute to introduce yourself and and how you became fascinated with Michigan wine? Yeah, I, um, I'm T.R. Shaw. I'm a Battle Creek resident. I serve on the board of the Regional History Museum. I've uh, been interested in history all my life. Uh, studied it in college. In fact, I fell one credit short of a history minor. Uh, I wanted to graduate, so I didn't complete the minor. But I've always done a lot of that. I've always been fascinated by Michigan history because Michigan itself has so much history in it and so many things have happened in Michigan. But um, I got interested in wine because, uh, you know, we went uh, up north and went to a few of the wineries and looked around and, wow, this is really kind of fun to go wine tasting, do that. And I started, uh, you go out to restaurants, I, you always get a wine list and I never saw any Michigan wines on the wine list. And I said, why is that? And I just, you know, we've got a great wine industry and all that. And, uh, so I kind of dug into it a little bit and just found out a fascinating history of Michigan and why, you know, California dominates the wine market. And uh, uh, it's just uh, how it all developed in Michigan. And it's, it's really a pretty fascinating from a historical perspective. It's really mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, I like wine, too. But, uh, but boy, the history of how it started, how it uh, grew, survived Prohibition and uh, Mm-hmm. A lot of other things that was really fascinating. So I kind of put it together in a program, uh, more or less on the history of Michigan wine. I'm not necessarily a, uh, I can't tell you I'm a wine snob or a wine expert and tell you what to drink, but uh, you know, a little bit about the grapes and a little bit about that. But um, but I'm not in any way can tell you, be an expert on what's good wine, what's you know mediocre wine. Uh, so from a just, historical <laughs> perspective, when did the history of, uh, the wine industry began in Michigan. Well, actually, it goes way back to uh, the early explorers. When it came, the uh, especially the French explorers that came here. Interesting uh, thing that La Salle, when he, one of the first European explorers, came here, discovered um, down near Monroe a river that was completely uh, uh, just had wild grapes growing all over it, and uh, he dubbed that river the uh, the Grape River, or what's known today as the River Raisin. Wow. La Salle and Monroe. And Monroe is kind of where with the abundance of wild grapes there, the settlers there uh, from Europe brought their uh, skills for making wine and utilized the wild grapes and started making wine there. And actually the 
Uh, years later, the very first actual winery in Michigan started in Monroe and uh, Point of Pew, and it uh, lasted for several years and then uh, kind of expanded into the Detroit area. And even in Detroit, as Detroit was being settled, Detroit was a fertile ground, and and as the people first settled there, they planted uh, crops and vineyards, and especially those that came from Europe because they made wine and beer in a lot of ways because there was no safe water. So by distilling grapes and making beer and doing all that, it was safer than drinking the water because we didn't have the uh, uh, water for purification at the time. And uh, so hmm. Europeans arrived and brought the uh, brought their winemaking and spirit making and distilling uh, with them had been done in Europe for years. So, but they also found that Michigan was just an unbelievable fertile place for growing uh, crops, for growing wine, for growing. Uh, uh, the grapes and uh, it uh, all grew from there and kind of Monroe and Detroit started it all and it all grew in Detroit along with other things. So, yeah, I know that there, uh, you gave me a map of the Michigan or the lakeshore of Michigan and it has the wine trails. There's the four different ones right. they have on their map here. So there seems to be mm -hmm. a lot more of the vineyards on the Western side of the state today. Is that right. a fair assessment? Um, as Michigan grew, um, they just in the west side of the state, known as the Fruit Belt, and uh, because of Lake Michigan, the, the air, the temperature, the water, uh, three things that made Michigan great: the water, the climate, and the soil. Um, and the uh, moist air off of Lake Michigan created what was called the Fruit Belt on the uh, west side of Michigan, and pretty much extends up the entire coast of Lake Michigan. Uh, as the industry was growing, uh, the grapes were grown in West Michigan and shipped to the Detroit area, uh, to the wineries there. And so the grapes were grown on the west side of the state, and the wine was made on the east side of the state for many years. And uh, it just kind of grew both ways. And now uh, we have, in Michigan anyway, there's, we have five what are called AVAs, which are called um, American Viticultural Areas. And these are federally designated terms that if it, to be on a, on a wine label, he has an ABA, like you see it, like Sonoma Valley, Napa Valley. Hmm. Uh, well, we have five of those regions in Michigan now. And actually, we have uh, Fenville, uh, Lake Michigan Shore, Leelanau Peninsula, Old Mission Peninsula. And the newest one we have is called Tip of the Met, which is the entire northern part of the lower peninsula. And these are... And actually, the Fenville uh, AVA was the fourth uh, AVA designated in the nation behind the ones in California. And of course, I got to get to mention California. That uh, California has been at it a lot longer than we have. Uh, you know, it's a very agricultural state. It started with the Spanish missions there, started making wine, and started doing that. But the valley in California is just. Everything there was huge. The, the vineyards are huge. The uh, the amount of space they had to grow, and it just grew into being the the dominant wine producing area of the United States for many years. And it started long before we did. So, as of right now, hmm. California wines have about eighty two percent of the United States market. 
And that's why when you go to the store, you go to restaurants, you almost always see California wine. It's just that it's been there that long and it's been dominated for so long. And and just the size of their production and the size of their agriculture of that state has just made them the the king of the hill, so to speak. And then along the way, of course, Washington, Oregon, and other places around the country are growing, but not a lot like Michigan and um, not quite at the level that California has just created. But it doesn't mean that we you know, we have an awesome um, state for growing wine and making wine. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so what impact – you mentioned prohibition uh, early on. What impact did prohibition have on the Michigan wine industry during that period? Well, that's a whole great story. Um, in general, Michigan, because uh, right after – industrial revolution all the europeans came here and they brought their winemaking and beer making skills with them all that and and wine and beer were basically a staple of life in that time and for the most part michigan literally thumbed their nose at prohibition and a matter of fact it was probably going to say the wettest time in the history of our state especially in detroit because it wasn't uh outlawed in Canada. So we still had all the wineries and all the liquor manufacturers in Canada. And the Detroit River became a freeway for bootlegging and shipping. And uh, it was just down to us. And it was, they said that anywhere from probably 15 to 20,000 speakeasies popped up in Detroit during Prohibition. Uh, so nobody ever really observed it. Not only that, but our law enforcement here never really pushed it they never they knew that you know it's just too much of a part of our culture and uh it led to all kinds of things it's some great stories i worked at a funeral home in detroit that the story of prohibition is um charlie verheiden in gross point uh who was a belgian and part of the belgian neighborhood in detroit anyways he'd take his hearse go to canada load up and come back uh, without ever being checked so he ended up kind of being his own bootlegger like that, but not that he was doing it to make a big profit or anything, but he, because he had the liquor, um, <laughs> he uh, became the dominant Catholic funeral home because all the priests knew that he had, they could get a drink at his funeral home and they sent, uh, all the families to his funeral home. And he, uh, he grew to be Detroit's dominant Catholic funeral home <laughs> during prohibition because he had his own little speakeasy up there and entertained the Catholic priests. So that was kind of one of those. I can imagine they held, uh, they stashed all the liquor in the coffins, probably in the hearse, and, and nobody at the border wants to open a coffin. Yeah, you know? <laughs> down to the science. Another great story about prohibition is Mackinac Island. Um, Mackinac Island, uh, the Grand Hotel. If you ever get a chance to sit down on the on the porch up there, their historian does a great two hour lecture on the history of. Uh, Grand Hotel, but and he said too that the prohibition was the wettest time in the history of the Grand Hotel, and they had uh, and everybody, even the island, most people in the island just kind of looked the other way on it, and it wasn't a big deal. And uh, what they would have is the the morning, of course, the pretty all the wealthy from Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland came up there and spent the summer up there. Mm-hmm. In the morning, the nannies would take the baby carriages out and walk the babies, and they'd go down to the piers. They'd load up the baby carriages and undercover the baby carriage and bring them back to the hotel. 
So they had pretty much a free flow of liquor up there. Oh, they were putting the they were putting the liquor bottles in the baby carriages. A lot in the baby carriage. They came in, canned <laughs> overnight, took it up to the hotel. The other thing that they did too is they had. And I never saw it. I don't know if it's still there, but at the up an upper level of the Grand Hotel, they had a giant turntable. You know, it had a bar on one side where they you know served liquor and all that. But if they were ever raided, they could turn it around. And on the other side were all the women who were doing the uh, uh, sewing and uh, napkins and things like that. And all the seamstresses there were mm. their room. They just, they just turned the room around. So somebody would come in there and inspect it. They would see the women working in there and not see the people drinking on the other side. Right, right. And then the, the funniest thing, though, is that um, even the police on Mackinac Island at the time were were kind of in on it. And they, uh, the Grand Hotel would call down to the police station and request a raid and they'd come sure and they'd set up a time and they'd drag a couple barrels out onto the uh, deck of the grand hotel and break them open and dump them on the porch get pictures of it mm. and send it to all the newspapers in chicago detroit cleveland everywhere and people flooded to Mackinac island because they knew they had liquor up there so it was kind of a, almost a joke for the most part. Um, but anyway, so we survived Prohibition. But the other interesting thing about during Prohibition is when we said we had the fruit belt on the other side, um, home brewing and home winemaking was not prohibited. So there was a huge, huge demand for grapes. And during Prohibition on this side, on the west side of the state is when all the uh, vineyards just started. Where it was heyday. They were just... Um, unbelievably productive and busy making it for all the home people and all that. And it attracted at that time, uh, Welch's, uh, Welch's had, um, from Concord, Massachusetts, Dr. Welch was a temperist and uh, he created grape juice from the turn of the century. And he'd found out about the tremendous grape crops that we had on the West side of Michigan. And he came and set up the Welch's factory over in Lawton. I think it was, yeah, it's Latin. And uh, grape juice just boomed, and that was uh, that was a big time for because it was non-alcoholic, and you could do that, and you could still do that. But the farmers and the agricultural, from an agricultural aspect, was one of the best things that ever happened to agriculture because there's the hundreds of vineyards, and they're still there today that uh, popped up and supplied everybody with grapes and supplied everybody with the. Um, they even sent them to Canada where they made the wine and then brought it back. Mm. So. So the west side of Michigan became extremely productive during Prohibition with the production of grapes because, you know, you could still grow grapes, you could make grape juice, and you could make it at home. So the demand for grapes was just through the roof during Prohibition. So that was one of the good things that happened at that time, too. So when Prohibition ended, um, all the Canadian uh, people, uh, had the market open, they'd, you know, they'd been working with people in Detroit and then, you know, kind of under the, you know, I guess you'd say illegally we're working with them. But now that it was open, uh, within the days of end of prohibition, they moved over to Detroit to take advantage of the market. And like within a, within a month at the end of prohibition, seven Canadian wineries came over and opened mm. up in Detroit. So there was a huge market to, um, to exploit, you want to say, and they came here and one of those was um, you know, Mariano Maconi, Italian winery uh, in Canada, came over and set it up and right. 
in Detroit mm-hmm. and was utilizing the grapes from the pawpaw area in the west side of the state. And uh, so he worked in Detroit for a while, and then he uh, decided to move the winery over to Pawpaw, and it, and he, be, he called it the Italian Winery um, after right. that. And then he um, decided he wanted to name it um, for his patron saint of his hometown in Italy. And, it, and at first, uh, he called it San Giuliano, who was the patron patron saint of his hometown in Italy. And then uh, World War One, or you know, World War Two came in Pearl Harbor like that, and he feared being an Italian immigrant of fascism, so he anglified it and called it Saint Julian. Mm. So Saint Julian still exists today as the largest winery in the United States, the largest winery in Michigan. They produce wine for some of the other wineries and uh, are probably the dominant one. The mark he was uh, quite the innovator. He got into grocery stores and. Uh, he worked out a deal with Kroger at the time and really and started selling wine in grocery stores. And it was, he was mm-hmm. real big on turf. And that name still exists today. St. Julian is still the dominant. Uh, but he moved over to Pawpaw because he wanted to be closer to the grape crop. And that's uh, just made sense to – he could still market to Detroit and uh, that area down there. So it was it's a pretty fascinating story just by himself how St. Julian came to be. So. Yeah, I interviewed um, one of the owners of St. Julian on uh, my podcast earlier this year. It was quite a fascinating talk. He um, told me a lot about the family history. Uh, Braganini. Yep, Yep. Uh, John Braganini, yep. And um, so can we talk a little bit about the grape varieties that Michigan is known for, the different uh, grapes and, and maybe some of the wines? Sure. Well, we have native some of the native grapes here too, but what don't have a great deal of the native thing, but what we've done over the years is we've imported European varieties. And uh, just to go back a little bit, uh, when uh, wineries basically was Concord grapes because of Welch's and all that. So we had those more or less domestic type grapes and some of the other grapes that we had here uh, to make grape juice. And they also made fruit wine out of that and all that. But what happened in northern Michigan, there's a great story about how Traverse City area got to be so uh, dominant in, in wine. Is that was a couple of reasons. One, it's on the 45th parallel, and that 45th parallel runs through you know, northern Michigan, and it also runs through the wine regions of France, the Bordeaux region of France, the hmm. Rhine Valley in yeah. Germany, and the Piedmont region of Italy. So we're on the same latitude of the great wine regions of the world. And at that time, there was a gentleman up there, who, uh, Bernie Rink, who was uh, he was the head librarian to Northern Michigan College, which is the community college up there. And apparently, in his spare time, he studied wine. He had a farm in Lelona, and um, he just studied it. He figured, well, you know, we're on the same latitude. We could probably grow that. So he experimented with some of the European varieties of wine, and he hmm. For a couple of years, grew grew a few and did that, and then uh, found the best one that he could, and it was a uh, uh, French uh, hybrid that he had, the Pinot Gris or Pinot Franc, that uh, grew the best, and he did that. So he started making wine there. And at that same time, there was a gentleman from Michigan State who brought in, who uh, came to Michigan from Alabama to do the berry crop to work on the berry, you know, the strawberries, blueberries, he was mm-hmm. an expert in berries. Mm-hmm. And he was dumbfounded by the amount of grapes that we had here. 
and he wow. got together with Bernie Rink up there, and he uh, ended up being more heavily into grapes and how to do grapes and all that. And he became known as Dr. Grape, and he ended up making hybrid. He would take – he ended up – Michigan State ended up making uh, taking German and uh, French varieties of, of wine – of grapes and grafting them onto American roots and from growing them. So it's still today in the Traverse City area, they still grow many of uh, the German and uh, French varieties that have been grafted into American roots. They can grow in American soil and they can produce French and German German wine. Uh, the dominant wine wow. up there is the German Riesling. 80% of the wine that's produced in northern Michigan, at least, and most of it in the southern part, too, is Riesling. And that's kind of the king of our wine here. We also do Chardonnays, uh, Pinot Gris, or Pinot Grigio um, is also one of the more popular ones. And they do a few red uh, Cabernet, uh, Merlot, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Blanc. So, And the French, um, Sevedol Blanc, hmm. Sevedol Vlau. Um, and, and Tramonet is also another one. So there's probably the dominant wines are the, the European variety or German here. So um, mostly white wines, a few red wines, but it's, uh, it's, it's growing in huh. um, popularity and it's growing in status. A lot of the wines now are, are winning awards and competing with California wine and other mother states and other regions. Uh, and winning all kinds of awards. So we're, we're getting close, at least in quality, to other regions. It's just that we don't produce the volume that other places do, and that's part of why we don't see them so much on menus. You don't see them so much, but we're, we're doing good wine. Uh, right now there's 140 uh, wineries in Michigan, and most of them are wow. our destination wineries, too, where it's just part of agritourism where you can go and, and sample wines. Some of them are bed and breakfasts, um, offer classes in wine. So we really have a growing, a huge growing interest in what's called agritourism. They come here for learn about wine, study wine. Um, mm-hmm. And that's an entire, because two biggest industries in Michigan are agriculture and tourism. So um, when they can have, People that bring it to our region, to northern Michigan or to west Michigan uh, for our wineries. Uh, we get tens of thousands of people a year coming to visit. And uh, it's starting to make a name for itself. So it's always kind of exciting to see an industry grow and bloom like it has. It's just that it's been, the time hasn't been, we haven't had the time that uh, like California has. And, but now you've toured a lot of these wineries and um on the Lake Michigan Shore Wine Trail, as well right. as going all the way up to Traverse City, which ones would you say your favorite ones are to visit? If you're uh, trying to steer someone in the direction of going to one of them, there's so many good ones around here. Um, the Southwest Michigan Wine Trail. You can pick up a brochure that highlights all the wineries and gives you maps to all of it. Uh, there's a few that I really kind of like to tour. One of them is Tabor Hill uh, down in Baroda. Tabor Hill is uh, was the first bonded winery. Michigan and actually started doing it and being licensed as a winery. Uh, they've won a lot of awards. They also have a great restaurant. You can go there and uh, hmm. tour their winery, tour their vineyards, and have a great dinner there too. And they've won all kinds of awards. And right across the street from that is Round Barn Winery. Um, Round Barn is um, it's an old round barn, which is kind of a neat in itself. That's kind of their logo and all that. But they uh, have a winery. 
They also have a distillery and a brewery there, but their property there, they do events, they do weddings, they do concerts, they do all. So it's much more than a winery today. You can go there, sample wow. wine, do that. You can get beer and you can get other, they do vodka and some other spirits there too. So it's more than just a winery. So those are a couple around here. On I-94, it's just right off exit 39. There's uh, Karma Vista and Contessa, which are just right off the highway. Okay. Um, just you can stop in there on your way to Chicago, and um, they're up on a hill. Just beautiful setting on top. You can look down on the vineyard and look down on the highway and see for miles from the top of the hill. Just a beautiful farm, uh, great uh, wine, and great uh, thing. Either one of them, they both. I think they both are serving food to some kind, whether it's just uh, munchies and things like that with it. So that's kind of a neat place. And then up north. Um, some of my favorites up there, uh, of course, are uh, Breeze Estate, uh, which is on the uh, Mission Peninsula. Uh, mm-hmm. Beautiful uh, vineyard. They build a deck that goes out over the vineyard, so you can go out and sit, and sit in the middle of the vineyard and up on the deck. As you walk in, they have a really beautiful mahogany bar and an old English uh, tasting room. It's just spectacular. And they kind of... They do a lot of mixed wines. They'll take like uh, Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris and mix them together in 50-50 and make like a mixture wines, which is kind of interesting too. But it's just a fun place to go. Beautiful place. Uh, Chateau Chantel is another one. It's right in the middle of the Mission Peninsula. And it has a view of both sides of the, both of the bays. They also have bed and breakfast there. They do seminars, do uh, uh, touring, do wine training. Uh, just a beautiful, beautiful place to to go and spend some time. You can you know stay there and B and B. Black Star Farms is another one. It's a, actually a working farm. They have horses and they have uh, they used to have a dairy there. They sold the dairy to somebody else, uh, but they have the tasting room. They have a a lodge, uh, an old English lodge. It's a B and B and just a, just a beautiful landscape uh, vineyard. You can go visit and tour. Run like that, and uh, so just in one interesting one too that is worth going to is up on uh, Sutton's Bay. Uh, okay. There's a winery called Sacconi, and this is a uh, it's a couple that came up from Rochester, and they uh, had started making wine down in Rochester, and their daughter uh, kind of hit it big in the music industry, and. Um, so they were able to buy a farm up in Sutton's Bay, and they've now grown into a visitor. But their daughter's name happens to be Madonna. So Madonna's, <laughs> so Madonna's parents have a winery in Sutton Bay called the Sacconi Vineyards, which is a really nice place. It's uh, Every place you go now, and when you talk about agritourism, they're really nice. They're very well done. They're very they're very modern. They're very, uh, they're all competing with each other, you know, for tourists and things like that. So, uh, they're just, if you want to have a good time, you can go visit some and see which one you like best. Uh, but all of them are first class and, uh, really just great places to go visit. And, uh, it's a tourist dollar coming to Michigan. It's, uh, uh, people learning about agriculture and it's anytime people get, uh, connects, you know, Popular now is food, uh, farm-to-table food. So anything that gets you close to agriculture is good. And uh, agriculture is still Michigan's biggest industry. So, And wine is just one way of people can get to know agriculture and get to know. You, know, you can do corn mazes, you can do pumpkin patches, you can do 
you know, go you pick apples. And that's all that's all part of agritourism and agro. Uh, but wineries happen to be just a fun part of doing that. And it's, uh, it's gotten to be quite a big business in Michigan, which is kind of interesting too. So I know one of the big resources is miwinetrail.com. That's a website where they can find the Michigan, uh, the Lake Michigan shore wine trail and other information. Are there any other, um, online resources they should look for? Yeah. There's a, the craft Michigan, it was called the Craft Beverage Council. It's uh, just michiganwines.com. Mm-hmm. And then okay. here's the uh, the Lake Michigan Shore Wine Trail, all one word.com. And that's everything about all the wineries. They're basically from Grand Rapids South, uh, the southwest corner of Michigan, which is its own wine trail. Hmm. Uh, both the Old Mission Peninsula and the Leelong Peninsula have their own websites. The OMP, Old Michigan Wine Trail. OMPWineTrail.com and LPWines.com. So we're all on that can tell you about the different wineries. And uh, and there's also a website, DrinkMichigan.org. It's a organization dedicated to promoting Michigan-made wine, beer, and spirits. So um, you know, beer is big, too. I mean, it's not only is wine big, but beer is big. I mean, it's, it's so many microbreweries now have popped up, probably three times as many as there are wineries, but um, also that's created a lot of hop farms, a lot of barley farms. Uh, so that's a big part of agriculture too. But just one other interesting aspect about Michigan wines that's kind of unique to Michigan is that we have a brand of wine that we, we create called ice wine and ice wine is a special wine. It's, it's really, it's a very small batch, but it's made from wines where the grapes are picked after they've frozen. So in other words, in, when the winter comes and uh, snow comes and it gets cold, they leave some of the grapes on the vine and they harvest them frozen. And by harvesting them frozen and producing them frozen, it greatly increases the sugar content. They make it a real sweet, uh, like a dessert wine. That's uh, pretty rare. They're about $75 a bottle. Huh. It's really hard to, hard to pick and hard to make and hard to... So ice wine is kind of a unique, little unique thing to Michigan that they make here too, which is interesting. Oh, that's really cool. Now I know that uh, you have your book. It is uh, yeah. Defy the Immediate, and I know it's probably not necessarily about wine, but it has a a lot of fascinating stories from your life experience interwoven into right. the story. Um, and I know that you have a book signing coming up on the ninth of December at the. Big B Coffee out right. on Hill Brady Road here in Battle Creek from uh, 10 a.m. to noon. So they can come out and get a signed copy of your book. And uh, Sure. Yeah, I'm just, uh, I worked out a thing with uh, Charles Solano, who owns the, he's the Big B Entrepreneur here. He says uh-huh. that's fifth Big B Coffee in Battle Creek. And you know, I have to talk to him and offer to, you know, I, I could do that for him. So he'd love to have me do that. So, so I'll be doing my meet and greet and book signing during his grand opening out there. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, some of the proceeds from my book sale, I'm going to go to our, our Rotary Club's uh, charities, which is a fund that we have for, for giving out. In fact, uh, gave, we gave a fund, part of our funds to the museum. We did that. So right. um, we, uh, so it'll be a fundraiser for that. And it's just fun to get out and meet people. And if they haven't seen my book, uh, it's a, uh, what I call a motivational memoir. It's uh, kind mm-hmm. of life lessons and leadership and 
mistakes, things that I didn't quite do right and what I learned from them. And, uh, but it also has a lot of history of not only just some of the military that I was involved with and uh, some of the history of Battle Creek in it. Cause uh, growing up, we had a funeral home in Battle Creek and we were part of a lot of Battle Creek history growing up. So we took care of a lot of the movers and shakers over the years and had some interesting funerals and did some, uh, uh, been close to the history of Battle Creek for all for four generations. I was, so we've been a part of the community. Well, that's good. They should definitely get their copy of the book. Um, and so that's going to be on Friday, December 9th from 10 AM to noon. It's over at the big B coffee on the corner of Little Brady road in Dickman. And it's, they're doing an official ribbon cutting. The the big B's open now, um, but they're doing their official ribbon cutting with the chamber of commerce, I believe at the same time, we're going to be out there selling tickets for the Christmas show, uh, tales of Christmas past as well for the battle Creek regional history museum. So we'll have probably a table set up there, um, selling the tickets that day. And, uh, he's uh, quite involved with the community, which is great. Um, Mm -hmm. one of the interesting aspects about that big B and Fort Custer that, you know, that used to be the chase bank that was there. And, um, Charles, the owner was a, uh, uh, he, he worked for Kellogg like that, left Kellogg and got out on his own. And he decided he wanted to get into this business and do a franchise. And he finally he got hold of Big B Coffee and he went to Chase Bank there at the time to take out, you know, to get a loan for to start up a business. And he got turned down there for that. <laughs> and now he owns the building they were in. <laughs> he went to Kellogg Credit Union and now, uh, now he has five big B coffees and he owns the buildings that uh, the bank that turned him down. So, <laughs> which is interesting. That's so, a good so, uh, story of perseverance yeah. and overcoming obstacles. Oh, yeah. He's right. such a great so, guy. He really is a good yeah, asset to is. the community here in Battle Creek. Um, he was a, he's a retired Marine. Well, you don't retire from Marine. You're always a Marine, but he, uh, yeah. he was going to set the record for uh, the Guinness record for chin-ups. Uh-huh. And uh, someone beat him to it apparently, but he uh, he was working up to be you know, to do like six thousand chin ups in a day or something. I don't know what the figure was to set the world record, but that was going to be part of his grand opening. Was uh, wow! You know, all these uh, doing just trying to set the world record in chin ups. So <laughs> <laughs> um, it's always but another marine is going to step up and try to take that title. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, anyways. Well, That's it's been good. fascinating talking to you today. I learned a lot about the wine industry in Michigan from your talk and uh, learned a lot today, a lot of new tidbits. I love the uh, the history of the uh, not only the grapes, but the different uh, vineyards and wineries. And that's neat that uh, we have a unique ice grape. Uh, what did you call it? Ice wine is what they're calling it? Ice wine. Ice wow. wine is, yep, that's uh, it's kind of a specialty. But, uh, mm-hmm. I think they got a harvest it you know after probably in january after everything freezes up and you gotta yeah that's really the snow to get the vineyard but uh they harvest frozen grapes so uh, that's quite something that is quite something something definitely unique to our cold weather here in michigan and uh well thanks for coming on today tr it has been uh, as always it's a pleasure talking to you great um, I've been talking with T.R. Shaw. He is the author of the book Defy the Immediate. He's also 
a Michigan wine history buff, and he was kind enough to come on the show today and share some of the history of the Michigan wine industry that we have uh, here in this state. And if you'd like to reach out to him, I'll put the links to where you can get his book on the show notes. And also, uh, if you want to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. If you have a guest that you'd like to have me reach out to and have on, I certainly would love to hear about that as well. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore yet another fascinating tale of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.